Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. This is Meredith Michael. Imagine a world where representations of objects affect the existence of those objects, where the scent of a rose preconditions the existence of the rose itself, where the identity of a person or place arises from its aesthetic qualities, where fiction and real life play out in strange parallels. A world where the connection between an object and its linguistic signifier go far beyond mere arbitrary social convention. Here, Shakespeare's adage about the name of the rose does not hold. Not only is the name of the rose absolutely essential, but it is also no simple accident that its name shares the sound of the past tense verb, a rose. Puns are serious business. This is the world of Edgar Allan Poe's short story, The Fall of the House of Usher. The phrase, the House of Usher, would seem to refer to two separate entities, the family line of Usher and the dwelling owned and occupied by the family. Yet we come to find out that these two are so intertwined as to have one identity, one subjectivity, one fate. The house itself almost seems to have arisen from a bizarre, luminous miasma seeping out of a swampy, dark pond. In the discussion that follows, Phil and J.F. take a journey into this shadowy house of Usher. Indeed, the story itself is more like a place that can be visited rather than a narrative recounting events according to causal logic. I mean, the ending is given away by the title. What matters most in this story is its singular mood, conjured through Poe's labyrinthine sentences and purple prose. Prose that seems to want to infect its readers with the need to use more adjectives in their own speech. While we're on the subject of journeys, Phil and JF are going to be traveling in the UK for much of the month of August, which means the show will be on hiatus. If you miss us too much, feel free to check out the Weird Studies Patreon, which contains tons of audio extras and essays. We will be back to regularly scheduled programming in mid-September, just in time to usher in the fall season. In the meantime, on with the show. The original file that we had on Google when we started all this weird studies business, remember we had a a document of potential topics. Yeah. Yeah, So this is yet another one that was on my list. 
this story. I'm very happy we're doing it. Fall of the House of Usher, Edgar Allan Poe, who I found out, or I actually knew this, but it was I was reminded of this looking over the critical literature a little bit, has a vexed, vexed reputation <laughs> hmm. in the literary world. Harold Bloom hates Edgar Allan Poe, and he's been often described, in fact, this is something, it's just, it's in the atmosphere, you kind of pick up on it, that he's a, a writer for adolescents. <laughs> I, uh, of course, couldn't disagree more. I, I don't know how you feel about it. He's one of my favorite romantic writers, one of my favorite writers, period. And the more purple the prose, the deeper I sink under his spell. I love it. Oh, I love yeah. it. I just savor every sentence of Poe. So we've never really talked about Poe. Um, no, we haven't. Yeah. Well, about Harold Bloom, I didn't know that he had an aversion to Poe, but if we use Bloom's own critical technique of reading the anxiety of influence, it is possible that Bloom, who <laughs> was quite interested in the daemonic aspect of creativity, might have found Poe not too distant from his sensibility, but perhaps a little too close to it. Mm. But that's mere conjecture on my part. Right. I haven't read Poe since I was maybe in middle school or at the latest early high school. We had a copy of, a, you know, like an anthology of Poe short stories, or my parents did, which I read from and I became sort of obsessed with for a while when I was about 12, 13, 14. And then that enthusiasm burned itself out and I haven't returned to Poe at all. Haven't read anything of his until you were like, hey, let's do Follow the House of Usher. Wow. And so this to me is like returning to middle school. Like you ever do that? You ever go back to like an elementary school or middle school that you went to when you were a kid as an adult? Mm-hmm. And uh, it's like tiny. Tiny, yeah, right. <laughs> like you're in your memory, the halls of the school are cavernous, but when you actually- The urinals there, are properly, at the proper height, but then I, I had to use the washroom in my in an elementary school on a shoot once. I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> what do I do but with that? <laughs> yeah. But that's not actually a good figure for my experience of returning to Poe after all these years, because that would- suggest that what struck me with a kind of almost ineffable awe when mm. I was young reading this stuff, it would be as if like, oh, I just returned to it and the stories seemed tawdry and cheap jack and threadbare. Not at all, not in the least. The thing that really struck me reading this stuff after the intervening decades and after reading a lot of, you know, classic weird fiction by people like Blackwood and Lovecraft and Mackin and so on is how Poe lies at the root of weird literature. Mm -hmm. You know, there's another romantic we did a show on, which is E.T.A. Hoffman. Hoffman, and right. And it's interesting to compare Hoffman and Poe. I mean, they have rather different sensibility. But although I think we made an argument for Hoffman being a real, like somebody who could properly be assimilated to the tradition of weird literature, at least in hindsight, it's perhaps as a kind of fellow traveler or spiritual cousin. Whereas with Poe, I have a very strong sense of there being a direct line of influence. Like I get the feeling that Lovecraft and the rest of them read Poe with the strictest attention. 
Oh, yeah. Well, that's definitely true of Lovecraft, for sure. Yeah, and I just feel like you're reading Poe, and it's like the birth of the weird. It's the birth of a lot of things. I mean, people point out that the first modern detective story arguably yeah. was written by science Poe. fiction. Uh, well, yeah. not, not the earliest science fiction, but he's among the pioneers of that genre. Yeah, absolutely. The influence that Poe ex has exerted on literature is incalculable. In fact, if you consider the fact that Charles Baudelaire was immensely influenced by Poe and all the French decadence kind of drew at that well, you know, and if you consider the influence that they had on French and English literature in the 20th century, then of course Poe is one of the great prophets of the modern weird and all of its kind of variations. You know, when somebody tells me, oh, I was really into Poe when I was in middle school, and I, I mean, that's, that's when I got into it as well. I used, it was at my school library, they had a little collection of his poetry, which, you know, I'm the first to admit that his poetry is not his strongest work. The short stories are on another level, but the poetry something, it's kind of hit and miss for me personally, but I became obsessed with like the Raven and what is it? The, the one that's uh, reproduced in this story here. There's a poem in, in the fall of the house of Usher. The, I can't mm. remember what it's called, the something palace. Anyways, those poems really grabbed me. You know, I remember getting into Poe at the same time as I was discovering, you know, grade eight, grade nine, discovering Blake and the doors. And um, to me, he belongs to that zone. And in a sense, you know, he has the reputation sometimes of being one of those writers that you put away along with the rest of your childish things, you know. But for me, that's where the magic is. Adolescents are very, very keen when it comes to figuring out what sort of text is most essential you know, to a, yeah. to their existence. You're so distracted by uh, biological <laughs> forces as a teenager that you're going to find whatever reading happens to dovetail nicely with the rest of what's going on in your body and mind at that age. And so to me, there's like a mechanical connection between Poe's writing and it has a biological current to it. That's why teenagers love it. It slots right into a kind of pre-conscious process that we go through. Hmm. Well, I'd say the same about Blake and the doors, you know, but that's just my own experience. But so I've always gone back to it periodically, especially this story, because this story, I don't know what the fuck is going on in this story. Like I, yeah. I literally don't know what's going on and I've read it over 20 times. I have no idea what's going on in this story. And yet the effect is so specific. And every time I read it, I go back to the zone that he creates, this affect that he concocts, which is as mysterious in its origin as the atmosphere of the House of Usher itself. Like he can't pinpoint where this atmosphere comes from. What is it about this place that has, that produces this effect? It's the same with the story. I just can't locate where the weird lies. It's kind of pervades everything. And it reminds me of something that Thomas Ligotti wrote, which is that every Poe story is an abyss, the shape of which is the story itself. Hmm. There's no ground in these stories. They're just mm -hmm. abysses. And I love that. I love that. Especially about this hmm. one tale. I love that idea of a story as a kind of black hole, a negative space. It works in talking about Usher, because yeah. this really feels like a little pocket dimension. 
a little right. pouch in which you can find yourself nestled. A pouch of velvety blackness. Velvety blackness, yeah. Shot through with purple. Yes, that's the poesthetic. It's not by any means the only story that works that particular kind of magic. I reread Mask of the Red Death. Oh, I love that one. And that one is similarly a story where very little happens, in a sense. Mm-hmm. And the sense of causality, like what exactly happened, is sort of vague. But what you have is incredibly intense atmosphere. Yeah. Mood. And we've talked a lot about mood on this show and the importance of mood. Mood not just being an emotional coloration, not as it were something ornamental or incidental, a decoration upon a structure, but the structure itself. Right. So there's this notion in 20th century music of Klingfarben melody, tone color melody. Perhaps in more familiar music, music of the 19th century, the old romantic war horses that you hear in symphony orchestra concerts to this day, like Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto or Beethoven symphonies, etc. You might have a notion that orchestral coloration, the orchestration of a piece of music is a secondary matter, a matter of coloring the notes on the page, you know, that you can uh, adduce a structure of music from the notes. And then, you know, whether you have a bassoon play a melody or a violin or whatever. That's an accidental, of, right. Yeah, I yeah. get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But with the modernists, generally speaking, you find in music and perhaps in other art forms as well, a shift of what formerly had been considered secondary to the primary position. And the idea that sound color itself, timbre, could be raised to the summit of composition such that your compositional decisions, your calculations, the structure that you're building is not fundamentally determined by harmony, like which notes go together or which notes of the chord you're going to use to accompany a melody, but rather the, this supposedly secondary quality of tone color mm-hmm. becomes itself a structuring principle. Closely allied to that is the idea of the clangflesh, the sound sheet, the idea that a sound can present us with a kind of a I don't want to say motionless, but basically a a body of sound that doesn't necessarily have any particular direction it's going. It just exists. And it's not through the motion of sound, but through the being and presence of sound that it makes its effect. Brutalism. Brutalism. Yes, actually. (laughs) Fuck, I didn't even think of that. But you're right. It's a kind of sonic brutalism. And it leads to the sound mass music of people like Penderecki right. and Ludoslavsky that we've talked about previously. But anyway, about Klangfarben melody. So you take the idea of sonority or timbre and you raise it to a primary principle. So like in Arnold Schoenberg's five pieces for orchestra, or particularly the third of them, what you end up with is a composition determined by a succession of sounds more than hitch content. So anyway, I'm going into this kind of great detail, I guess, to try and come up with an analogy or metaphor for what I feel is going on in Poe. The idea that you could create a short story 
whose determinant is not really fundamentally characters and plot incidents, but moods. Moods. Yeah. The, the sense Tone. of- yeah. Yeah, the significance of something like, you know, a wall of weeping stones. Yes. Uh, or a deadly miasmic marshy lake. Yes. Tarn, Tarn. as it is called. Yes. That such things go from being, as it were, incidental or like matters of decoration or arabesque and, and become the determinant of the story. And I think this is one reason why a story like this can be at once kind of voluptuous and all enfolding and then at the same time baffling and utterly resistant to our attempts to say exactly what happened in which respect it's very much like a dream yeah exactly very much like a dream yeah i love the way you're describing it and i think that musical analogy is right on there's a moment early in the story and we'll summarize the story as we go but just uh sure. to get into one little detail here for a second there's a moment early on where the narrator arrives at the house of Usher. And it's a gothic, an old gothic mansion of the type that you would expect to find in a story like this. But he, the narrator, is, who is completely nameless and without qualities, the narrator, he's just a stand-in for us. It's almost like a first-person shooter story where you feel <laughs> like you're, you are just looking through the eyes of this narrator. And Poe used this device on several occasions to have a kind of like qualityless narrator to guide us through the story so that we're all the more immersed in it. There's no fourth wall in a sense. But he's trying, the narrator is trying to figure out what is it about the scene? He's come upon this house and he's looking at it and it's built there next to a tarn, so a pond that extends before it. And it's got these decaying trees and these fungi growing on the surface of the stones. And he's trying to pinpoint what is it about this place that gives him such a feeling of dread and gloom and despair, and he can't locate it. And at one point he says, it's something about the co-location of all these various yes. elements produces this effect. And in a sense here, Poe is giving us a diegetic or in-story version of his poetic theory, you know, that he gives us in right. his famous essay, The Poetic Effect, which is that every element in a composition and an artwork should be so arranged, configured, placed as to produce an effect. And I think it's better to call it an affect, a mood. That's what we mean, I think, when we're talking, to create a mood that is not reducible to any of the parts, but is somehow an effect not of the significance of any particular central part, let's say, but rather an effect that emerges imminently out of the configuration itself. I love the part where he says, the narrator notices that the house looks like it's decaying, but he can find no sign of external forces having compromised the integrity of the building. Everything is exactly where it should, but each individual stone is decayed. I love that yes. idea. So it's like every element in the story is decayed, but the story itself holds together in this perfect brutalist composition that is not in itself uh, damaged or nothing is left out. It's not like the story is leaving out details to create a sense of dread. Like, oh, is uh, um, Usher's sister a ghost or not? Uh, what, what's going on? You know, it's not like that. It's the mystery emerges out of the proliferation of facts itself. Yes. They don't add up to anything other than this mood. Yeah. I love that. 
I mean, because it's an additive theory of horror. Exactly. Inflational. Yeah. A lot of the ways we think about horror or what scares you, we think of it in the subtractive model. Like, why is the dark scary? Well, because you can't see in the dark. And so you can get only partial information. You know, hear a bump in the night, right? And you start conjecturing about what that is. But actually, what if terror came in not through a paucity of details? Notice I'm using more $5 words than usual today. Poe just has that effect on me. Yeah, right. He's the kind of guy who will use habiliments instead of clothes right. or viands instead of food yeah. uh, at every possible occasion. And I am here for it. <laughs> but yeah, what if the mood of horror came not through the absence of detail, but through their superfluity, through the piling up? We've talked about this before. I think we borrowed this idea from Graham Harmon talking about Lovecraft that, you know, Lovecraft will tell you of one of his monsters and he'll start feeding you so many glimpses that kind of pile up, but they don't amount to a unified image in our head so that we're confronted with this kind of proliferation of horrors, kind of oozing, glistening, pulsating, suppurating mass of horrors. One of many ways that I feel like Poe is something of a spiritual ancestor to Lovecraft. Oh yeah, absolutely. That sense of profusion, by the way, I mean, it obtains in Poe's writing just as it does in Lovecraft's. And talking about secondary and primary qualities of an artistic work, a number of years ago, somebody put out a, a thing. I'm reading this on Boing Boing. This is from 2015. Lovecraft with adjectives, similes, and metaphors edited out. And so <laughs> this is what Lovecraft sounds like when you remove all of those nominally secondary and decorative parts of speech. The aperture was black. It obscured parts of the inner walls. It burst forth from its imprisonment, darkening the sun as it slunk away in the sky. An odor arose from the depths, and Hawkins thought he heard a sound down there. Everyone listened, and everyone was listening, when it lumbered into sight and squeezed its immensity through the doorway into the outside air of the city. Wow. And I kind of like it, though. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a Hemingway-esque version yeah. of Lovecraft. And it's a testament to the power of his style that still something of the essential Lovecraft comes through. But it was supposed to, I mean, in a way, it's sort of like a, a way of diminishing Lovecraft in the same way of like disemvoweling yeah. a text message, like one way that at least... Sometimes bulletin boards used to manage trolls was by disemvoweling the words, like taking all the vowels out. Right. So you could kind of decipher the text, but that somehow drew the sting from an intentionally hurtful remark. Likewise, pulling all of these parts of speech out of Lovecraft's prose ha has perhaps the effect of making it seem slightly ridiculous, mm -hmm. but it makes you realize to me how utterly essential those parts of speech are. All those Not adverbs, just giving yeah. us a sense of style, but like the story is in those things. Exactly. And it's the same thing with Poe. Anyway, sorry, I feel like I've belabored this point long no, enough. No, that is so true. Something baroque about these writers, right? Yes. You know, in opposition to the brutalism comment from earlier, but I think those things can coexist. Yeah, there's an ornamentation of language, which is only ornamentation from a particular point of view. 
if your question is how do these writers obtain that effect, then the ornamentation becomes pure substance. It's absolutely central to the effect, I think. But yep. there's buy-in required, you know? Some people can't read Lovecraft or Poe, you know, they can't. You need to buy in. You need to say, I will, you know, especially with Poe, but both of Lovecraft and Poe are both obviously writers who suffered from a, a mental illness to a certain extent. And that's clear um, in our, you know, modern way of seeing things. And even at that time, they were seen as being essentially mad. And so there's buy-in, buy-in required. And I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that there is danger in truly buying into this sort of fiction. Not danger, yeah. but there's risk. There's something at stake. I really felt it on this read. I read it twice. And the first time I read it this weekend, I was truly shaken. I was just in the perfect mood for it. And I, I was able to just kind of like take it in like a, like just drink in the the prose. And it shook me. I felt... I, th I believe I felt what it is he was trying to me to get me to feel, which isn't all that easy amongst us jaded postmoderns. And it's hard to feel sometimes. <laughs> But let's talk about the story. Yeah. It's very simple. And of course, this is spoiler alert. I don't know if that's even required in this case, since this is pretty much a canonical tale that everyone should know anyways. And actually, it's one of those stories that even telling the story yeah. doesn't really enlighten you very much. Won't do anything, no. Yeah, it doesn't really make a difference if you yeah. know what happens. It's funny because often in this type of story, the authors seem to put a lot of stock in the big reveal at the end. Like they yeah. often italicize the big reveal and you're like, that wasn't <laughs> yeah. necessary at all. Like in this one, it's like, we've put her living in the tomb. It's like, yes. Okay. Yeah. We, we, doesn't we got matter. that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there was no need to say it, but um, so there's an epigraph at the beginning, which I like in French by an author named De Béranger. Do you know who that is? No. No. Son cœur est un lutte suspendu, sitôt qu'on le touche, il résonne, which means his heart is a suspended lute. As soon as you touch it, it resounds. And I love that epigraph because it seems to speak, obviously, um, speak directly to the theme of this story. What if your heart, what if what was most internal to you, when touched, would resound so that it becomes an external force in the world. I don't know. This right. epigraph seems to touch on this blurring of the boundary between the inner and the outer, which is so central mm -hmm. to the story. So what's the story? Do you want to start? Yeah. So the a named narrator shows up and spends quite a bit of time just puzzling on the exterior of the House of Usher. And actually, I had a notion just reading the first paragraph, just to give people a kind of a, a sense of the... I thought the same. Let's do it. The mouthfeel yeah. of, uh, of the prose. Okay, so very briefly, our unnamed narrator shows up at this house and he says, well, the, the, the master of the house, the, the descendant of an ancient noble house, the house of Usher lives out in this decayed mansion and we're told that this uh, scion of the house of usher roderick 
was a boon companion, a friend of the narrators in school times. They've since sort of lost touch. And only recently as the narrator received a letter pleading with him to come post haste to the house where he could give companionship to Roderick, who appears to be in a bad way. So the narrator doesn't quite know what he's in for. He just has received this summons and now he finds himself at the house and he's looking at it and he has thoughts about it or feelings about it. So I'm going to read the first paragraph. It'll give you a sense of Poe's style. And I think it also definitely touches on what you were saying, the collocation of elements. You can see Poe putting these elements together, almost like a chemist, adding ingredients together. And what we end up with is something rather more than the sum of its parts. We can see kind of the magic of what Poe is doing already in this one paragraph. During the whole of a dull, dark, and soundless day in the autumn of the year, when the clouds hung oppressively low in the heavens, I had been passing alone on horseback through a singularly dreary tract of country, and at length found myself as the shades of the evening drew on, within view of the melancholy house of Usher. I know not how it was, but, with the first glimpse of the building, a sense of insufferable gloom pervaded my spirit. I say insufferable, for the feeling was unrelieved by any of that half-pleasurable, because poetic, sentiment, with which the mind usually receives even the sternest natural images of the desolate or terrible. I looked upon the scene before me, upon the mere house, and the simple landscape features of the domain, upon the bleak walls, upon the vacant eye-like windows, upon a few rank sedges, and upon a few white trunks of decayed trees, with an utter depression of soul which I can compare to no earthly sensation more properly than to the afterdream of the reveller upon opium, the bitter lapse into everyday life the hideous dropping off of the veil. There was an iciness, a sinking, a sickening of the heart, an unredeemed dreariness of thought, which no goading of the imagination could torture into aught of the sublime. What was it, I paused to think, what was it that so unnerved me in the contemplation of the House of Usher? It was a mystery all insoluble, nor could I grapple with the shadowy fancies that crowded upon me as I pondered. I was forced to fall back upon the unsatisfactory conclusion that while beyond doubt there are combinations of very simple natural objects which have the power of thus affecting us, still the analysis of this power lies among considerations beyond our depth. It was possible, I reflected, that a mere different arrangement of the particulars of the scene, of the details of the picture, would be sufficient to modify or perhaps to annihilate its capacity for sorrowful impression. And, acting upon this idea, I reined my horse to the precipitous brink of a black and lurid tarn that lay in unruffled luster by the dwelling, and gazed down, but with a shudder even more thrilling than before, upon the remodeled and inverted images of the grey sedge, and the ghastly tree-stems, and the vacant and eye-like windows. Brilliant. Brilliant. That's good writing. <laughs> it is. Oh, let's go on with this because there's so much to say about this paragraph. I don't know. If... Yeah, just this one paragraph alone. Yeah. yeah. Let's go deep. Let's um, do it. Okay. Well, before we go on with the summary, <laughs> 
what I love about this opening is that it's giving us, I think, a kind of meta-literary clue about the story. The narrator is experiencing the House of Usher. We're experiencing the fall of the House of Usher, the story. But the same kind of conditions apply. The source, it's like I was saying before, the source of this mood of gloom that the story immediately casts is not localizable. You can't just impute it to a combination of elements. It is simply rising like a kind of miasma, like a kind of atmosphere or mist out of the arrangement itself. Yes. So I have the Penguin Fall of the House of Usher and other writings, and it includes some of his critical writings at the back, including a one-page essay called On Imagination. This is on 447 of that book, if you have it. And it's really kind of a neat, short, little bit of aesthetic theory. He writes, the pure imagination chooses from either beauty or deformity, only the most combinable things hitherto uncombined, the compound, as a general rule, partaking in character of beauty or sublimity, in the ratio of the respect of beauty or sublimity of the things combined, which are themselves still to be considered as atomic, that is to say, as previous combinations. Okay, so, so here he's saying that imagination picks and chooses from things and reshuffles them in new combinations. Now, if you listen to, for example, our Bitterhene episode, and certainly the a couple of episodes on tarot cards, perhaps most recently the, the star, but I know this came up in another episode, and now I can't remember, the whole distinction we've been making between the circle and the spiral, the wisdom Blade of Runner. the serpent and the wisdom of the dove. Yeah, Blade Runner. Yeah. There is in that symbolism of the spiral as against the circle, the possibility of things coming into a given situation, into a system, for example, a system of aesthetic expression, an artistic tradition. There's always the possibility of something unhallowed, unheralded, unknown, making its uh, breakthrough into the world and completely changing everything right? And that can happen on the level of creativity. The artist who is capable of making a new statement whose novelty is not merely the kind of consolation prize novelty of arranging known things in new orders. So here, Poe is talking about the pure imagination doing this kind of picking and choosing from combinable things hitherto uncombined. He starts off saying like, okay, and the character of the combination will be given by its parts, right? Or is that really what's going on? He says, oh, this happens analogously in physical chemistry, but I feel that this is a bit of a red herring. He says that it sometimes happens, and he says it does happen in the chemistry of the intellect, that the admixture of two elements results in something that has nothing of the qualities of one of them, or even nothing of the qualities of either. Mm -hmm. Thus, the range of imagination is unlimited. Its materials extend throughout the universe. And he says, basically, what true imagination does in its combination of known elements is come up with things that could not have been predicted from those elements. Yeah. And something that transforms each element, such that the, each right. element becomes something it wasn't before the combination. Yes. I love that. Um, I've been reading about crystallography 
recently. Just really basic entry level stuff because I can't handle anything more complex scientifically. It's fascinating. And I, I don't know. I sense an affinity there. I'm not going to get into it more than that until I've won't make a fool of myself talking about it, but there's something of the way that atoms combine in a crystallizing pattern to form a macroscopic effect that is completely irreducible to those atoms, something completely new, you know? Yeah. But um, that's brilliant. Yeah. And you can see that happening even in this first paragraph and well, yeah. increasingly so throughout the story. Because the narrator is like, he tries to console himself. He does what we always do when encountering something truly weird is we try to explain it away. We try to gain control over it through some rational idea. And so- he starts off saying, well, what is it exactly that's terrifying me about this scene? And he starts thinking like, well, maybe it's some particular part or it's the arrangement of things. And he consoles himself the idea of like, oh, if you just maybe rearranged a few things, maybe if we cut down those dead trees and put up a nice little copse of, of flowering plants, or, I don't know, maybe it would cheer the place up a little bit. But immediately the supposition is dashed when he looks down into the lake and he sees reflected like, so in a reflection, you have everything all together, the full collocation, the, the combination of elements, but inverted. Yeah. And even in its inverted form, it still just, it strikes his heart with dread once yeah. again. Like he's, he's whistling past the graveyard. He's trying to imagine that it's like, actually, it's the way the scientific imagination works upon complicated things. I'm going to gain control over this through... A kind of critical method where I'm going to take this apart into the smallest atomic units, and then I can work upon those. I can add them and subtract them, and I have therefore control over the totality. Yeah. And he wants to do that, but the thing is, the totality reasserts itself immediately. Yeah, it's exactly. Like that yeah. whatever it is that has emerged through the combination of these elements, that thing is now here to say it is a being, an intelligence, an emergent intelligence in yeah. this world. It's moved beyond the accidents of its origin to become something new and terrible. Absolutely. I think what's happening is that it's such a weird move he makes. Like, oh, I'm going to look in the tarn and look at the reflection of the house and maybe that will help me. I find that kind of a strange thing to do, but it makes so much sense from what you're saying because the way I, I see it is he's trying to comfort himself by finding the means of convincing himself that his gloom, his feeling of dread is simply a subjective thing. It doesn't actually belong to the place. It's just something that he's reacting to. Right. And so he look, what does he do? He looks at a photo of the place, an objective representation of the place, not him standing in it, but a totally separate photo of the place, which is present just as a photo would be in the tarn, a representation. Right. And yet not only does his mood not improve, it gets worse when he looks at right. it that way. And after he looks into the tarn, he looks back at the house and he starts to see even more stuff. He sees for the first time the strange luminous mist that rises out of the, uh, from the decayed trees and the, the tarn around this house. And most strangely, and this is, I find this brilliant. And this is something Poe does. He'll put in images or events in his stories that you just can't get your head around. They're like, these are things that might happen in a dream because they're so absurd. But he has a way of putting those into a, 
fairly more quote-unquote realistic uh, narrative and they somehow work, he looks at the house and he sees a fissure zigzagging down from the top of the house, like a crack all the way from the top of the house to the bottom Mm -hmm. and disappearing into the tarn. Almost like now the house has become a two-dimensional image that you could just tear like a piece of paper. Right. Yeah. And in this flattening, this ontological flattening effect that looking into the tarn made possible, in that very experience of flattening his space, he does not succeed in expunging the subjective charge of the scene, but rather he shows that he exists in a two-dimensional space in the scene. There is no escape. There is no way of separating himself from what he's seeing. It's almost, he's an aesthetic creature in an aesthetic universe. Everything is of the same fabric and there's no extricating himself. And I think that the deep implication is that we as readers since we too are looking into the tarn, we're looking into the tarn of fiction and seeing a representation of the house, neither can we extricate ourselves from the revelation at hand. We're involved in it. Yeah. Which is how this story and stories like it just cling to us. Exactly. Like a wet sheet. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. The narrator perhaps realizing that he is like the stones and the dead trees and so on, one part of this collocation. Exactly. Precisely what I'm trying to to say. Yeah, that's exactly it. And the die is cast because now the story has to include him. Yes. And the fact that he's got no biography, he's a narrator without qualities. We don't know who he is, what his name is, you know, the only way we can describe this character is by describing the story. That's, those are the only qualities of his that we have. So, well, the narrator of the House of Usher is the guy who goes to the House of Usher. He's inseparable. He haunts the story and the story haunts him. There's no way of extricating him from the story. It's not like Sherlock Holmes happens to go to Dartmoor to solve a case. Right. This guy exists only in this text. And since we have no nothing to go on as to who he was before the story began, he is simply the dreamer and the dream wrapped into one. Nice. And so who do we fill that space with but ourselves as readers? You know, we have no choice. I don't even know if we know if he's a man. Oh, yeah, he, we do because Usher at the end calls him Madman. gets to the house and he's brought in by a valet 
The interior of the house is described as this kind of really gloomy, dark, baroque space of, like you said, velvety darkness. You just feel like it's this stifling, labyrinthine kind of space in there. And on his way to Usher's chambers, he happens to meet the family physician, which I found a nice touch. A physician whom the narrator sees as being, you know, not the smartest. He wore a mingled expression of low cunning and perplexity. That's what he sees in the, in the physician. <laughs> uh, the physician accosts him and then moves on and leaves the house. And then the narrator is brought into Usher's study where he meets his friend. And he can barely recognize his friend. So wan and decayed is his uh, appearance. And here, I think it's here we learn about, oh, it's a little before that. We learn that the House of Usher is peculiar in that it is both a house, a building, but also a family, right? And that's common, right. you know, the House of Lancaster, the House, you know, you have that. Yeah. But in this case, the House of Usher only exists in the physical House of Usher. It has no existence yeah. outside that house. And so it, there's a synonymity of the building and the family. Why? Because the family tree has never shot forth any enduring branches. It's basically an incestuous direct line of lineage from father to son over time. And there's right. no, it does, this noble aristocratic family exists nowhere but in this house. And Roderick Usher is the last one, or at least that's what we think at the beginning. And this, um, of course, is one of the great tropes of decadent fiction. Of course. The degenerate scion of a decayed house, yeah. of a fallen race, Yes, to use the overripe language of the time. What is it about that idea of, it's like an idea of belatedness, of... Um, Not belonging to the world anymore, of hanging on to some vanishing past? Is that yeah, it? Having yeah, having hung on too long. Yeah. It's like in, in um, there's a book by Matei Kalinescu, The Five Faces of Modernity, which is a, an important sort of comp lit-ish attempt to grasp the idea of modernism by understanding it through its different faces. And one of its faces is decadence. Right. And so there are a lot of temporal paradoxes in the modern. And one of them is the idea that something is at once very new and very old. Mm. And so like the degenerate scion of the fallen house trope gives us an idea of immense age, of a, a lineage that goes back centuries, possibly millennia, and the idea that it's surviving incarnation, Roderick Usher, is in a sense like very old, the idea that his peculiarity, his febrility, his wan countenance. Jesus, I'm, I, don't I sound like Poe? It's like <laughs> reading Poe makes you sound, talk like this, or at yeah. least makes me talk like this. Yeah. Um, he almost seems to be like one of those uh, deep undersea creatures that are sort of pale and flabby and phosphorescent. Like an anglerfish or something, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But you get the feeling of exhaustion that generation after generation of- The blood has um, thinned. Uh, the yeah. blood has thinned and yeah. has been tired and overtaxed. And we have this vague, wan, neurasthetic creature that's all that's left of a formerly hale stock. Mm -hmm. And so from that sense, very, very old, but at the same time, the absolutely new. Eminently modern. Yeah. 
Yes, as if this is a creature who is involved in a kind of avant-garde art project of discovering new frontiers of degeneracy, of sin and obliquity. Yeah. And actually, new frontiers of art, because one of the shocking things in this story is that Poe just describes modernist abstraction, modernist (laughs) abstract art, like, boom, just does that. Just invents it. Yeah. Yeah. Because, okay, so the unnamed narrator has been hired to be a kind of particular friend to Roderick Usher. And this is something that happened in the 19th century. Uh, Charles Darwin was brought along on the Beagle because the captain, whose name now escapes me, I want to say it's Fitzroy or something like that, but I'm not, I can't quite remember, um, wanted to have a friend he could talk to, just a companion, because the rigorous and hierarchical rules of the service meant that the captain couldn't speak as an equal to really anybody. And so... Basically, that this was a job you could have, a professional friend for somebody who, right. through circumstance or occupation, is unable to form normal social connections with other people. In this case, it's because this is a guy who, it is impossible to imagine him outside the walls of the house. He seems, just as the narrator remarks, that the peasantry in the neighboring regions, the house of Usher meant equally the house itself and the people who live in the house. Mm-hmm. Likewise, as a character, Roderick Usher seems to be completely coextensive with this house, seems to be consubstantial. He says so much. Yeah. <laughs> he, and and so he needs a friend because he's just like in this vast, dim, echoing space. He's just sort of rattling around in there. So that is at least a sort of plausible diegetic reason for the narrator being there in the first place. And he has to keep him company. And so they read, you know, he reads him stories out loud and keeps him company as Roderick paints his paintings. I would like to read out the description of Roderick's paintings. Yeah. I shall ever bear about me a memory of the many solemn hours I thus spent alone with the master of the house of Usher. Yet I should fail in any attempt to convey an idea of the exact character of the studies or of the occupations in which he involved me or led me the way. An excited and highly distempered ideality threw a sulfurous luster over all. His long improvised dirges will ring forever in my ears. So he's described as accompanying himself on the guitar and improvising poetry, in- improvising songs mm-hmm. um, with a marked grotesque and fantastical character. Among other things, I hold painfully in mind a certain singular perversion and amplification of the wild air of the last waltz of von Weber. From the paintings over which his elaborate fancy brooded, in which grew touch by touch into vaguenesses, at which I shuddered the more thrillingly, because I shuddered knowing not why, from these paintings, vivid as their images now are before me, I would in vain endeavor to educe more than a small portion which should lie within the compass of merely written words. <laughs> There's some purple prose for you. <laughs> By the utter simplicity, by the nakedness of his designs, he arrested and overawed attention. If ever mortal painted an idea, that mortal was Roderick Usher. 
For me, at least, in the circumstances then surrounding me, there arose out of the pure abstractions which the hypochondriac contrived to throw upon his canvas an intensity of intolerable awe, no shadow of which felt I ever yet in the contemplation of the certainly glowing yet too concrete reveries of fusilli. One of the phantasmagoric conceptions of my friend, partaking not so rigidly of the spirit of abstraction, may be shadowed forth, though feebly, in words. A small picture presented the interior of an immensely long and rectangular vault, or tunnel, with low walls, smooth, white, and without interruption or device. Certain accessory points of the design served well to convey the idea that this excavation lay at an exceeding depth below the surface of the earth. No outlet was observed in any portion of its vast extent, and no torch or other artificial source of light was discernible. Yet a flood of intense rays rolled throughout and bathed the whole in a ghastly and inappropriate splendor. Oh, so good. So he's, yeah, he basically invents modern abstract art. Eat your heart out, Kandinsky. Uh, and, uh, and, um, and, th but then he proceeds to describe one painting, which is more figurative in the sense that the narrator can kind of make out that this is an underground subterranean vault. Obviously here, there's a foreshadowing of the climactic event of the story, which is when they bury Usher's sister, whom we'll get to in a moment in a vault underneath the house. But what I love about this description, and here I'm, I'm just moving, we're kind of working with dream logic today, Phil. We're kind of jumping from one thing yeah. to another, which is, seems appropriate. What I love about the description of this painting is his mention of the fact that it is lit, but there's no source of light. Yes. For me, this is so important because a little later on in the story, when he's describing, oh no, a little, the page before in my, in my edition, the narrator is describing the futility of his attempts to cheer Usher up. He says, um, and thus as a closer and still closer intimacy admitted me more unreservedly into the recesses of his spirit, the more bitterly did I perceive the futility of all attempt at cheering a mind from which darkness, as if an inherent positive quality poured yeah. forth upon all objects of the moral and physical universe in one unceasing radiation of gloom. And ah, again, so perfect. we've got darkness as a substance. And light mm -hmm. as a substance. Light yes. without source, darkness without source. Darkness which exists on a footing with light. It's a callback to our episode on, um, on Tenazaki. Right. In praise of shadows. So I think we're being, what's hinted through these images is the fact, again, just remembering that we are in a two-dimensional, a term I'm using purely as a kind of um, placeholder for aesthetic, a purely imaginal realm, a dream world. Like, think about your dreams. Your dreams have light in them, but that light needs no source. You know, yes. like the, the light of dreams is not the same type of light that we experience here in the physical universe, looking up at the sun or light bulbs or stars or whatever. It's auto-luminescence. It's the auto-luminescence yes. of things. And that's precisely what they all experience at the end of the story when that strange miasma from the tarn rises up again and things the narrator tells us are illuminated from below or from within themselves things are casting their own light almost like they're inside a dream they're realizing that their world is a dream world where the causal laws that govern a putatively physical universe are simply just illusions or aesthetic choices they're not the fundamental ground of things 
And so once again, the impossibility of extricating yourself from the purely imaginal order of all things in which you're just caught up in things in a kind of strange dream logic that precedes any kind of causal determinations. But I love this image of the lit vault, right, that Roderick paints. Mm -hmm. And then when they descend into the vault later on, it is pitch black. It's that substantial yeah. darkness. And that kind of dualism or Manichaean dualism that you often find in Poe is so beautifully rendered in this little figure here of the painting. And also darkness and light changing places to a degree that seems to empty out both darkness and light of their ordinary meanings. Mm -hmm. So you're like fathoms under the surface of the earth and yet you're in a room brilliantly lit, mm -hmm. right? Like yeah. pitch blackness at noon, the terror of a, a total eclipse. Ah, uh, yeah. You know, where it's like dark at the wrong time or the weirdness of this brilliant light in the dark lightless places under the earth that also participates in a dream logic yes again uh, i'm thinking now of those deep sea creatures which are bioluminescent or yes you know they create their own light because they can't they have no source for it so they have to make their own it's amazing that life that cellular tissue manages to pull this off you know, it's like, it's like, that's crazy that the way that light seems to pre-exist any of its manifestations, like, uh, it's like Genesis, right? God says, let there be light and then goes about hanging the sun and stars and stuff in the sky. So well, what the hell was that light before? You know, the Greeks had a, you know, this is my own way of understanding it, but the, the Orphics in ancient Greece, the Orphic tradition in ancient Greece put a lot of stock in a God named Phanes. Phanes, P-H-A-N-E-S, who was the original primordial deity that created, not so much created the world, but created the conditions for the world. And mm -hmm. Phanes bursts out of the Orphic egg and his name, Phanes, it's the, where we get the words fantasy or fantasia. Phanes mm. means appearance, to appear, to shine forth. So often his name, Phanes, is translated to the shining one or the one who appears. To me, he's a figure of that primordial light that we don't find in the physical universe, but that needs to exist in order for physical light to exist, but that we experience in our dreams and our imagination. It's the light of the imaginal. Mm. I'm picking this up off the story. Of course, I'm not sure. Poe would have said it, said it that way, but I, I enjoy seeing these connections. But part of the creepiness of the story is the way that, that if there's a kind of a negative epiphany here, right? It's a not uncommon thing for mystics to talk about a kind of revelation of the universe of all things as being an illuminated, mm -hmm. as if the universe itself were made of a kind of coalesced light that uh, we, for the most part, don't have eyes to see. But that's the mystic vision, right? But this is like a kind of a negative yeah. version of that, where it's like darkness itself. Also, there's a kind of an, a velvety blackness of existence itself yes. that can that can shine through just and that these things can trade places that you can have light in the place of dark and dark in the place of light. Things are topsy turvy against nature. But in a way, it's, it's very decadent. It, totally. But in a way, that primordial light also is the autoluminescence of darkness, right? Darkness yes. is something you can see in a dream. Like if you dream of like a room with like a lamp and there's this black shadow that the lamp casts in this 
otherwise white room. That shadow is not less substantial in your dream space than the lamp. They both exist on a level. You could imagine that shadow simply disappearing or or you can imagine removing the lamp, but the shadow remaining. You know, mm. the shadow is lit by the same primordial light. So it's a light that transcends the duality of darkness and light. It's the luminescence or the inescapable sentience of all things in a weird way. And we'll get to that too. The idea of darkness sentient is genuinely terrifying. There's a book written in the 70s. James Herbert, a British horror writer, wrote a book called The Dark, in which the monster which terrorizes this one street in an English city, I can't remember if it's London or some other city, the monster is an inky black darkness. And it's actually really well executed. It's genuinely terrifying, although it's got all those gratuitous, weird, sexy bits that, um, you know, like, <laughs> that you'll find in a dime store novel and all that kind of really crappy writing. But uh, the the monster I found pretty, and it's, the, it's, it's brilliant. Yeah. The monster's just darkness. You know where that manifests in people's actual walking around reality is in sleep paralysis. This is a call back to oh, our, yeah. Rodney Asher ep our first Rodney Asher episode where we talked about The Nightmare, which is a documentary on sleep paralysis. And one of the interview subjects in that film says something like, it's been a while since I've seen the film, the darkness came alive. Yeah. Shadow people. Yeah. And shadow people, these beings that are made of darkness, yeah. like that idea of darkness as a positive quality rather than merely the absence of light mm -hmm. is something attested again and again by people who suffer from the attacks of shadow people and sleep paralysis. Yeah. My own experience of sleep paralysis involved a, a goblin-like little creature that to me, in my experience, was made of darkness. Yeah, just made out of total darkness, like a, a darkness that's deeper than the shadows surrounding it, you know? So this comes back again and again. And in the logic of the imaginal, it makes so much sense, right? Mm -hmm. It doesn't work in any physical account of light, but it's so deeply, viscerally real to us on an imaginal level.
let's continue with the summary. Where were we? Okay, so we were talking about the, I don't know, things that they got up to during their days together. But maybe we ought to introduce Madeline. Exactly. Immediately upon arriving at the house, I think it's in their first conversation, Usher mentions that he happens, and this is weird because they were boon companions, we're told, close friends who shared many intimate moments. And I want to say parenthetically that I really love 19th century depictions of friendships between men. I find Mm. that there's a tenderness to the way that male friendships were depicted in literature at that time, which I find kind of hard to to find today. Um, You don't find it very Mm. often. Almost kind of a maternal thing going on between the two of them as the narrator comes in to take care of his friend. Anyways, Usher says, I happen to have a, a sister, a twin sister, who is very, very ill. And you probably won't see her. But then, of course, the narrator happens to glance to see her eerily moving through the house or through the chambers in the far background. And so her name is Madeline, and she's very, very ill. She suffers from presumably the congenital family illness and is going to die soon, Usher says. And Usher tells the narrator, this is probably the last time you'll see her out of bed. And in fact, the narrator will not see her again until she is dead. So Madeline is this strange other figure in this house who, it's weird because Usher reveals this and then he says, then for the next few days, we didn't mention her at all. (laughs) She's never mentioned at all. In fact, until Usher suddenly tells the narrator, oh yeah, my sister died. We have to bury her in the vault beneath the house. And the physician, who was strangely, who was present at the beginning of the story, does not appear. He's nowhere to be found. Nowhere yeah. to be found. So The, the yeah. incident really feels dreamlike. Oh, yeah. You know how in dreams you will receive the announcement of some pretty dreadful or at least momentous event suddenly out mm-hmm. of nowhere with no preparation and in an almost sort of decontextualized way. That's how... Yeah. This happens here, just suddenly. Yeah, suddenly she's dead. And Usher decides that he doesn't want to put her in the family burial ground. He wants to put her under the house, not only under the house, but directly beneath the part of the house where the narrator is sleeping. And so they descend into the depths of the catacombs or the dungeons of this house and bury Madeline or leave her down there in a crypt. But she's perfectly preserved. She still has a slight smile. She has rosy cheeks. And uh, the narrator attributes all this semblance of life to her, uh, what is it, cataleptic condition, the, the particular type of right. illness which, from which she suffered, which gives a semblance of life. And, and they leave her down there in the crypt and then lock the crypt, close the big iron doors to it, and then return to the house. And then Usher, after that, enters a kind of like state of hysteria, a barely controlled hysteria. He starts to pace around, and the narrator begins to contract this madness. And there's a folie à deux element to the last part of the, the story, which is almost kind of hilarious, almost kind of comedic, where they're driving each other crazy, or at least the narrator is going crazy as a result of the agitation in his friend. And this goes on for about a week until on on one night, the narrator can't sleep at all and gives up on the idea of sleep. And there's this crazy windstorm just ripping through the area and he's pacing around and suddenly Usher shows up and the narrator is almost relieved to see him because he was just, he, he had just this fear, which Usher early on in the story says, I think that the fear will kill me. A capitalized fear will, that will be his undoing. He says, I'm not afraid of 
dying or of suffering, I'm afraid of the effect that these things have, which is absolute terror. There's also another moment in the beginning of the story where the narrator observes that terror is the only emotion that can enter a kind of a vicious cycle where yeah. the very increase of terror provokes- Is itself terrifying. Is itself terrifying. And so you, you're kind of spiraling into terror. Yeah. And so yeah. at the end of the story, the two of them are kind of sequestered in the narrator's chambers and Usher opens the windows and this spectacle of like, crazy weather phenomenon is going on out there. Like the clouds are swirling right above the house and the wind is just changing directions every moment and the drapes are flying in every direction. And there's no stars because of this storm. There are all these clouds, are no, there's no starlight or moonlight, but everything outside the house and then within the house, it seems, all the objects are starting to give off their own light. And so that strange atmosphere of um, this luminous miasma, which the narrator experienced when he first, momentarily experienced when he first arrived, is now everywhere. In the midst of this madness, the narrator decides to read his friend an old kind of um, Arthurian romance, which Poe invented from what I could tell, called The Mad Trist of, uh, or Trist. How do you say it? I would the, say Trist. The but, Mad Trist right. of um, of Lancelot Canning, which is a fictional text. that, And he starts to read from this story, and then something really weird happens. I'll let you. Okay, so as he's reading this Mad Trist of Sir Lancelot Canning, it narrates how this knight appears at the hut of a hermit who sort of spitefully refuses entrance and the knight forces his way in to find not the hermit but a dragon and there's a great shield hung on the wall on which is engraved the following lines who entereth herein a conqueror hath been who slayeth the dragon the shield he shall win and so Athelred, which is the name of the the knight takes out his mace and cracks the dragon on the head. And in its death throes, the dragon gives off a horrible, harsh shriek. And what starts happening as the poem that the narrator is reading out to Roderick continues, you have this narration of sounds, the shriek of the dragon and the crash of the shield the as door it falls first, yeah. from the wall. Yeah, the, the, what was that? The door. The first one is him busting the door. That's the first sound. That's right. Yeah. The first sound is him crashing through the door and then the death shriek of the dragon and then the crash of the shield coming down from the wall. And the narrator fancies that he can actually hear these things as he's reading this story, that he can hear somewhere deep in the recesses of the house, a dim echo of what he's reading. Yeah. And then finally, it turns out that that is exactly what happens in a kind of ecstasy of terror. Roderick shrieks out, and this is, um, uh, this is peculiar, uh, <laughs> madman, madman, I tell you that she stands without the door. Yeah. Basically, what they've been hearing are the sounds of Madeline um, yes. making her way up from the tomb. Yeah. Yeah, so he talks about how they're listening attentively, and he described, the narrator describes Usher 
His eyes were bent fixedly before him, and throughout his whole countenance there reigned a stony rigidity. But as I placed my hand upon his shoulder, there came a strong shudder over his whole person. A sickly smile quivered about his lips, and I saw that he spoke in a low, hurried, and gibbering murmur, as if unconscious of my presence. Bending closely over him, I at length drank in the hideous import of his words. Not hear it? Yes, I hear it and have heard it. Long, 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 many minutes, many hours, many days have I heard it. Yet I dared not, oh pity me, miserable wretch that I am, I dared not, I dared not speak. We have put her living in the tomb. Said I not that my senses were acute? I now tell you that I heard her first feeble movements in the hollow coffin. I heard them many, many days ago, yet I dared not, I dared not speak. And now, tonight, Ethelred, <laughs> the breaking of the hermit's door and the death cry of the dragon and the clangor of the shield say rather the rending of her coffin and the grating of the iron hinges of her prison and her struggles within the coppered archway of the vault. Oh, whither shall I fly? Will she not be here anon? Is she not hurrying to upbraid me for my haste? Have I not heard her footstep on the stair? Do I not distinguish that heavy and horrible beating of her heart? Madman! Here he sprang furiously to his feet and shrieked out his syllables, as if in the effort he were giving up his soul. Madman! I tell you that she now stands without the door. And then, of course, the wind opens the door, and there stands Madeline, covered in blood because of the struggle she had to go through to claw her way out of the crypts. And she comes into the room and collapses on her brother, who dies of fear in that moment. And the narrator, just in a paroxysm of absolute terror, runs down the, the stairs and leaves the house, just flees the house as fast as he can. And as he's fleeing down the path on his horse, presumably, he sees a light coming out from behind him. And he turns and he sees, this is a crazy image, that fissure, that zigzagging fissure, which he had seen like kind of slicing the house in half at the beginning. Almost like an invisible crack. You know, like when you see a teacup that's been cracked, but yes. it's still whole. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it was at first when he saw it. And now it just cracks open and the blood red moon appears behind it and the house just collapses, just falls apart and falls into the tarn, into the pond, which swallows it all up. And that is the fall of the House of Usher. It's like a literal fall. <laughs> the house actually yeah. falls apart. What a weird ending. I mean, everything from the synchronicities <laughs> of his reading, he's reading a romance to his friend in order to calm him or distract him. And suddenly... The escape into romance, right? The ultimate escapist move. So let's read something to escape from the harsh reality. No, 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 no. The, the deeper you delve into the imaginal, in this case, in the form of this romance, the deeper into the real you sink. Like, it's almost like he's saying yeah. there's no escape. It's what we call escapism in literature is an escape into the real, not out of it. And so yeah. he's reading the story and all of a sudden there's a synchronicity of the events in the narrative and what's going on in reality. And then this weird revelation that they put her in the tomb too early, but so unearned from a purely narrative perspective. Like, right. like what do we, okay, so she, we were told she was sick and then we were told she was dead and turns out she wasn't, but there was nothing at stake. None of this mattered in the story right. so far. It's just out of the blue. It's this total, it's like, um, I read a really good essay by Joseph Adamson, who wrote an essay, uh, a paper that was presented at the Fry Centenary back in 2012 
because Northrop Fry was a big fan of Poe. And he says what Fry loved about Poe was he loved the intense, quote, intense and discontinuous character of literary experience. He loved these discontinuities, these non sequiturs, these sudden, like you were saying, like in a dream, these abrupt changes of direction, which for all their unwarranted character or nature, never really ruin, but in fact, increase and amplify the mood, the overall mood. It's like, it's only by, with these dreamlike discontinuities that you can achieve the mood that he's trying to achieve. That's right. He, realism has to go right out the window for it to work. But then we we reach a deeper realism, a stranger realism, which, and I was, I was listening again to our episode on Eyes Wide Shut. And uh, one of the points we make in that one is that a truly naturalist depiction of life should feel pretty dreamlike because most life feels pretty dreamlike, you know? That's right. And life is filled with discontinuities and strange abruptnesses. But yeah, what do you make of this ending? Well, actually, I'm going to jump back to what I was saying at the beginning when I was talking about Schoenberg's Klanfarben melody and the idea of taking secondary qualities and having them assume primary and structural importance. This is the payoff of that method. As you say, from a plot perspective, like, you know, submit this to your creative writing instructor and you'll get a C. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And some strong suggestions for revision. Yeah. Like, you know, setups and payoffs. That's how plots work. Right. This would not pass muster for a screenplay, right? Right. But of course it would and does. And it's, a, you know, it's a great work of fiction, but like, it's great because in part anyway, it is making a kind of a, desperate gamble that you can withdraw the things about stories that we think make stories and you can amp up these other dimensions of mood and texture timbre to use the musical yeah. term right tone for tone color mm -hmm. and that can assert its own logic but it is not story logic and it's not the logic of our waking lives no or it's not the conscious logic of our waking lives, but it's the logic that asserts itself in moments of synchronicity. And in moments of participation, like I've been reading a lot right. of Lucien Lévy-Brühl and the basic idea that Lévy-Brühl was working with is like, okay, so-called primitive peoples, those peoples that he called primitive, mm -hmm. non-modern societies and you know, tribal societies and indigenous societies in Africa, South America, and elsewhere that these people were possessed of a logic, but it just worked differently from the logic that Levi Brule or any educated European would have been familiar with. Causality, as we understand it, doesn't have much place, but the affinity of things through their right. participation of like aesthetic qualities. Mm -hmm. Levi Brule himself doesn't talk much about aesthetics, but another anthropologist who is a close associate of Levy Brule's, Maurice Leinhart, in his introduction to the posthumously published notebooks of Levy Brule, points out that actually Levy Brule could have done himself some favors by understanding the strange participation, the way that different symbols, for example, the idea of human beings and parakeets and the assertion of a particular people, the Bororo of the Amazon, the assertion that they are parakeets, not like parakeets or not like sometimes we're human beings and sometimes we're parakeets, but like in your walking around man shaped form, 
you are a parakeet. Like it was stuff like that that Levy Brule set himself to understand and understanding a sense of participation, of the coming together of qualities such that something like the unwanted appearance of a painting of Queen Victoria in a New Guinea village. This is an example he gives in one of his earlier books, Levy Brule does, is held to be associated with an outbreak of animal illnesses that killed somebody's livestock. And, you know, the Europeans would say like, well, there's no causal mechanism by which a painting of Queen Victoria could cause sickness in sheep. Therefore, this is nonsense. But what Levy Brule was trying to figure out was like, yes, but to these indigenous peoples, there is a connection, but it isn't causal. And it has to do with like something about the painting goes with, is associated with with sickness. And so like, you know, Levy Brule didn't quite draw this connection, but like an aesthetic quality, something about the painting has to do with sickness. And it is in this sort of the world of participation that objects like the shininess of an object or the slickness of it or the blackness of it or the smelliness of it or whatever. The the, the secondary qualities, right, right. Yeah, these things become primary. They become not causal, but they are determinative. Yeah. They account for everything important. And in this climax of the story, it's like almost like a singularity, like a black hole where everything goes... (laughs) together. Everything collapses in like a star collapsing into a black hole. And all these aesthetic qualities that have been lovingly and lavishly detailed over the pages of the story, all of it coalesces into this mood of horror, which is almost objectless and almost contentless and without consequence. But somehow all of these aesthetic details just collapse into the singularity of horror. Yeah. They all fall into place. Again, crystallization, just like the atoms in a crystal simply just fall into place in a perfect symmetry for very obscure reasons and create a pattern that repeats itself and and results in a beautiful crystal, which is a great analogy. The crystal is a great metaphor for a great work of art because it refracts light from different angles. You can turn it and look at it from different ways. You see things in it, you know, that aren't structurally part of it. They're lenses for seeing something there. And um, yeah, I love the way you're describing it. This You're describing it in terms of utter opacity, right? Everything into yeah. a black hole. I'm describing it as a kind of crystalline structure that emerges spontaneously mm-hmm. at the end. You can look at it both ways, right? Yeah. And again, I love what you're bringing in here because I think it's so essential that what Poe accesses what he deploys within himself to write these wonderful stories that are still being read now, probably more than most of the uh, quote unquote respectable 19th century writers today than ever before. What's so powerful in these stories is this strange acausal logic of the aesthetic, as we're calling it, and uh, this participation, participation mystique, I think was the the phrase that that Jung kept quoting from uh, Lévi Brun. And in the uh, Joseph Adamson essay that I mentioned earlier, 
Adamson is explaining why Fry loved Poe so much. And one of the things that Fry loved about Poe is that Poe simply just, he didn't try to explain away the archetypes. He just gave you raw symbols, raw archetypes, like in the, um, the naive mode that Jung describes, right? That he opposes to the sentimental mode in literature. This is a callback to our episode on Jung's idea of art. So the naive artist gives you raw symbols. They're almost precariously exposed, right? Almost like live wires, like broken uh, electrical wires. And they're just like, you know, popping and crackling uh, just with the current just exposed out there. And um, in doing this and in engaging in this sort of logic, Poe is participating in the old tradition of the romance. If you read medieval romances, they read like Edgar Allan Poe stories with all these non sequiturs and discontinuities that somehow make sense at a deeper level of sense-making than the purely causal or narrative level. I love the way that, uh, I don't remember, sorry, I have a note here. I don't remember if this is Adamson or, or Fry, but there's mention here of Poe's gift for utilizing the sensational and then sequence of romance narrative, as opposed to the hence logic of descriptive causality. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Aimed at by realism. So mm. it's the and then, but the and then it's like this happened and then this and then this and then this. And again, if you look at a film like Eyes Wide Shut, it's entirely composed in this logic. There's an excess in each scene that needs to be resolved. But it, instead of being resolved synthetically within the logic of the scene, it just brings up a new scene with yeah. you know, the excess of each scene leads you to a new scene. And it's completely different, but it's working off of the logic of the previous scene, but instead it's of additive. being, a, it's not, it's additive. It, it, exactly. In the way that I was describing earlier, exactly. A kind of horror of addition rather than subtraction. Or, uh, as, um, uh, James Mackin, you know, who's a wonderful book on weird British fiction. He calls it inflational, I think, or he's, uh, he's yes. citing someone inflational weird where you're constantly inflating. I think Poe wrote, I've never looked at it, but I think it's called Eureka, big treatise, cosmological treatise that Poe wrote about, you know, the nature of the universe and stuff. And, uh, it is exactly that. It's like, I, I haven't read it again, but I, I kind of see it as a kitchen sink cosmology where it's like everything's thrown in there. It's just so bloated, a bloated universe, a, a bloated, <laughs> baroque, brutalist universe that one might oppose to the pristine, minimalist universe of someone like Einstein, right? Who just mm. boils everything down to simple processes. This, this is a this is like a Rube Goldberg universe where <laughs> you, you need as many things as possible and, you, and all these things conspire to produce an effect which is not reducible to any particular process within it. It's shaggy. It's a bloated, shaggy, lumbering eldritch beast yeah it's a, sas a, a sasquatch cosmos. universe yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know and something that i wanted to talk about also is the way that in this kind of singularity this collapsing of qualities and effects into this kind of black hole or crystal depending there's also a collapsing of as you said at the beginning of this episode inner and outer Mm -hmm. The notion that, for instance, the House of Usher, like the actual building, and the House of Usher, Roderick Usher, the last degenerate scion of a fallen house, the sense that those two things are kind of the same, that in a sense, how else could the story have ended but with the dissolution of the house after the dissolution of 
Usher himself exactly. after he dies of fear. And this is earlier in the story when the narrator, and this is a typical thing that, I mean, Lovecraft does this all the time, where you have a narrator telling us of some superstitious notion that turns out to be absolutely correct. Right. Later on. I learned, moreover, at intervals, and through broken and equivocal hints, another singular feature of his mental condition, that is to say, Roger Cusher's. He was enchained by certain superstitious impressions in regard to the dwelling which he tenanted, and whence, for many years, he had never ventured forth, in regard to an influence whose suppositious force was conveyed in terms too shadowy here to be restated, an influence which some peculiarities in the mere form and substance of his family mansion had, by dint of long sufferance, he said, obtained over his spirit, an effect which the physique of the grey walls and turrets, and of the dim tarn into which they all looked down, had, at length, brought about upon the morale of his existence. In other words, Roderick Usher himself is telling you this house and I, we are one in the same, or two aspects of the same diseased subjectivity. Yeah, exactly. And this happens in Poe a lot, where, again, objects, like, for example, the black velvet draperies of the uttermost chamber in the Mask of the Red Death, mm -hmm. that aesthetic quality goes with, participates in the spectral figure of death that appears at the end of the story. I, I think in a sense, it's one of the signature marks of the Gothic is that all the internal, everything which the enlightened 18th century encyclopedist would say belongs purely inside the human subjectivity, suddenly asserts its existence outside in weather, in architecture, in, in elements of the outside world, such that there is no more comfort obtained in in uh, attributing pure subjectivity to a mood like it's all over the place and of course poe is the master of this in keeping with what you just read there there's a moment in the story where we get a sense of usher's metaphysics <laughs> you know um i well remember that suggestions arising from this ballad because we were just given the lyrics of a ballad that usher sung led us into a train of thought wherein there became manifest an opinion of Usher's, which I mention not so much on account of its novelty, for other men have thought thus, as on account of the pertinacity with which he maintained it. This opinion, in its general form, was that of the sentience of all vegetable things. Mm. But in his disordered fancy, the idea had assumed a most daring character and trespassed under certain conditions upon the kingdom of inorganization. I lack words to express the full extent or the earnest abandon of his persuasion. The belief, however, was connected, as I've previously hinted, with the gray stones of the home of his forefathers. The conditions of the sentience had been here, he imagined, fulfilled in the method of collocation of these stones, in the order of their arrangement, as well as in that of the many fungi which overspread them and of the decayed trees which stood around, above all, in the long undisturbed endurance of this arrangement, and in its reduplication in the still waters of the Tarn. So everything that the, the narrator saw at the beginning, Usher says, this particular aesthetic configuration of elements that is this house, this place, gives the place sentience. We're going back here to our idea of spiritus loci, right? Mm. The spirit of place, that what is it that gives a place its weird sentience, its weird semblance of intelligence? It isn't any particular element in the place, but rather 
the very arrangement of the elements that compose the place as such. Mm. It's like an idea, a metaphysical idea of consciousness arising not from complexity, but rather from the aesthetic configuration of a a limited set of elements. It might be Mm. as simple as a few pencil strokes on a piece of paper, but if they're well made, if they aesthetically pop, a certain type of sentience enters into the configuration itself. The figure becomes in a weird way alive and therefore Mm. becomes amenable to all those phenomena that we associate with pure internal subjectivity, such that places can suddenly start to feel and think and act in weird ways. And that's as good an explanation for consciousness as any other, to be honest, you know, like it's not like the complexity of the brain makes the consciousness of brains more easily explained than, you know, if the dead matter of a brain can achieve consciousness, then why not the dead matter of a rock? You know, on, on purely materialist terms, we have no explanation for the emergence of subjective consciousness, however tenuous we want to understand subjectivity. So this is an idea that the aesthetic itself is the source of consciousness or sentience in nature. And I find that rather compelling. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider subscribing to Weird Studies on your favorite podcasting platform. You can also follow us on Twitter, visit the Weird Studies subreddit, and of course, support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel, and the show is made with the assistance of Meredith Michael. Thank you for listening.